Well, today we are getting close to the end of this whole series on Ruth. Some of you are probably wondering, when, oh Lord, will this take place? In our time or in the future? Well, one more Sunday is all we got. Today we're going to talk about God writing the last chapter, but that doesn't mean we're done today. Now, I want to take you back to a, uh, an old quote. Maybe some of you have heard this before. The quote goes this way, love is blind, but marriage is an eye-opener. Now, I have a good friend. His name is John. Nancy knows him. from, And he told me, no, it's not the way it goes, Doc. It's love is blind, but marriage is a can opener. Now, I've never quite figured that out, but it's an interesting piece of wisdom nonetheless. Now, to say marriage is made in heaven, uh, and it is, uh, in, in the sense that God established it for our benefit. But as Shakespeare one time said, uh, the course of true love never did run smooth. And suffice to say, very little has run smooth for Ruth and Naomi up to this point. Uh, As a little Moabite girl, uh, she could hardly have imagined that one day she would end up marrying a Jewish man. And much less did she know that someday uh, her husband, Malon, that Moabite guy, uh, would die, leaving her a widow among her own people. And never in her wildest dreams had she ever thought that someday she would move to God's land, back to Bethlehem, that house of bread, uh, with her mother Naomi, a decision that meant leaving not only her people, but it left her homeland, and it also, we should remember, left her religion behind as well. And finally, she never expected that she was ever going to propose marriage to Boaz on that threshing floor. Remember, we covered that last week. And, uh, but, but that's how this whole story's kind of gotten to where we are today. I wonder how many of you ever worry about the future. Now, I won't ask anybody in particular today, but what if uh, I offered you an envelope today with the next 10 years of your life described in detail? The good, the bad, the ugly, uh, the victories, the defeats, the happy, the sad. And suppose I say, Jeff, you can open it, but you can't change the contents what would you do? Good answer, buddy. You put an envelope like that in front of me, and it's called, Feet Don't Fail Me Now. <laughs> I'm, I'm out of here. I, I'd run the other way. I mean, after all, my, my life's hard enough as it is, uh, living it one day at a time. It, it's kind of better to live it out one day at a time. Uh, at some point, we need to believe that God is somehow working behind the scenes, even though we don't know what's out ahead of us. And so all of these twists and turns that we've seen since Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, God has been writing Ruth's story. And now we kind of conclude, still got one more message, but a happy ending is just kind of around the corner. And so we want to see what God has in store for us today. We're going to look at it to start with scene, three different scenes. Here's scene number one, and this goes back to verses 1 and 2. Now, we know Boaz was a man of action. And when he made up his mind to do something, he was the kind of guy who got it done. He did not waste time. And that's why he, like, immediately, probably the next day after the threshing floor incident, heads uh, to the gate of the city and sat down there. Now, I don't want you to think of the gate like a gate in the fence, uh, because um, you need to think of it more as a place where people would meet. Every town of any size, and even though Bethlehem was a little town, probably had a wall of sorts around its inhabitants just to keep them safe. And because it was a small village, there was probably only one way in uh, where you could enter and leave. It was kind of like the main street into 
Bethlehem. That's the gate you almost pictured the shepherds running in one day and said, the Savior has been born. Uh, he's Christ the Lord. Now, evidently, so this is what we got. Little town, little wall, little gate. Uh, this meant the gate was, uh, this is where the merchants, this is where visitors would gather. It's a place where people would transact business. Uh, this is where you would go if you had to settle a dispute. Uh, the elders of the city always, always seemed to be sitting there. And because they would be called upon, ultimately, to be witnesses. And in this case, Boaz needs to find ten good guys. Ten guys to serve as witnesses as he's going to attempt to redeem Naomi's land and in the process take Ruth as his bride, as his wife. There's only one problem, and I hope you caught it in the reading that Laird shared with us. There was a man who was nearer to Elimelech than Boaz. And uh, so Boaz is not is going to have to figure out a way in order to make a legitimate offer and have this guy turn it down. Now, I, I've, I've read this thing so many times the last week. He's some cagey dude. <laughs> There's a lot going on in his head. But see, in order for this to happen, he had to do it legally. He needed witnesses. So that's why he's here at the gate where they transact different things. He also knows that this other guy is going to show up in town sooner or later. Now, Boaz, he's a shrewd businessman. When the other guy comes, do you remember what he called him? He said, friend. Now, that's kind of interesting. And ask him to sit down and let's talk a little bit. And this man's name is completely lost to history. We have no idea who this, quote, friend was. Now, I got to tell you that when I look up that word friend in Hebrew, there's really no good definition for it. It's not kind of the definition of friend we would have today. It's kind of an untranslatable phrase that means something like Mr. So-and-so. Very anonymous. Uh, It's um, his unwillingness to stand in contrast to Boaz's generous spirit. Mr. So-and-so is going to get an offer that he definitely uh, can ultimately refuse. So let's go to the second scene here in this story, verses 3 through 10, the kind of the bulk of what we what Lara read to us today. And here we see uh, that Boaz knew how to close a deal. And he starts out with good news in verse 3. He says, Naomi, who has returned from the territory of Moab, is selling the portion of the field that belonged to our brother Elimelech. Now, guess what? Up to this point, we didn't know she had land, did we? But she had land she was coming back to. She's got land to sell. And this evidently meant she had to sell her land so she could be completely out of poverty. And the nearest, as the nearest relative to Elimelech, you remember him, Mr. So-and-so, has the right of first refusal. Uh, Boaz could only redeem the land if the nearer relative refused. Now, on its face, it's a pretty good deal for Mr. So-and-so. He could... Uh, pick up the land, I'm sure, at a pretty fair price, um, and he could add it to his own estate. And when he died, he could also pass it on to his children as well. It's a good deal now, and it's a good deal later. And that's why Mr. So-and-so said in verse 4, I want to redeem it. I want to be the redeemer. Now, this is where the catch comes in. And there's always a catch, isn't there, in the good deal? Uh, this is why you need this is why you really need to wait until you have all the information before you make a decision. It turns out that this was a package deal. You buy the land, Mr. So and so, 
but you get a bonus. And her name is Ruth, and she will become your wife. Now, based on what we know about Ruth, that's a pretty good deal. I, she, she's a good thing. She's a woman of high character. She was a hard worker, took care of her mother. She's an all-around good Moabite girl. But it also meant that whoever bought the land had to marry her and had to father a child through her, which meant that this man suddenly changes his tune. I can't redeem it for myself. I'll lose my own inheritance. Wow. This probably already means, it doesn't say it in, in Scripture, I have a feeling he was already married. Probably had his own children as well. And they would be the natural heirs to his property and to Naomi's property. But adding Ruth and a son would really mess up life for him. And so in a, in a real instant here in this story, Mr. So-and-so uh, says, um, man, this is an opportunity of a lifetime. But I ain't going to do it. <laughs> I can't do it. I'd be buying nothing but a future headache. This would just be miserable, and I can't afford that in my family. And so he says, you heard it before, verse 6, take my right of redemption. I'm giving you my kinsman redeemer job because I can't do it. Now, we don't have video of this, but I wonder if Boaz is standing up the side going, <laughs> got him. <laughs> Maybe a little smile. Because his plan works out to perfection. He knew Mr. So-and-so would have to say no. So there's a chance he might have said yes. But I think Boaz knew what he was doing. And so if the man said yes and followed through, that just means that he'd probably still take care of Ruth and Naomi. That's kind of the guy he was. But in his heart, I know that he was already hoping and praying that all of this would take place where he could ultimately redeem the land and he could also marry Ruth. Now, if you caught in the reading today, in those days, if you're going to uh, have a property sale of some kind, imagine doing this today, buying somebody's house. Uh, it's sealed by one man giving a shoe or a sandal or a cowboy boot to another guy. That's verses 7 and 8. It's like selling your home and then handing the keys of the property over. So giving the sandal meant I am giving up my right to walk on this property because it now belongs to you. Now, with the deal done, Boaz says two times to ten witnesses. He's covering his tracks here. He says, you are my what? You are my witnesses. Now, in the Greek New Testament, witness is martyria, which means martyrs. I mean, this is almost like if you're my witness, you've signed your, not death warrant, but you are bound and determined even up to death to stand on this decision. Now, he made sure everything was right because he wanted to honor the name of Ruth's dead husband, Malan. And any son born now to Boaz and Ruth would be perpetuating Malan's name, not his own. So we could back up now in the story and ask ourselves a bunch of questions like, uh, does Boaz love Ruth? Absolutely. Uh, has his plan worked? Definitely. Is it legal? You betcha. I don't know what that's, that's Hebrew. Uh, by the way, where's Ruth at this time? Well, she's back home with Naomi. Uh, neither woman knows what's happening at the gate. Besides, they're not allowed to be at the gate with men doing business. Kind of like women are not allowed to go to an elders meeting or something like that. Uh, but So she follows Naomi's advice to sit there and wait, knowing Boaz is going to settle it. Now, do you suppose Ruth is praying for Boaz? 
We don't know. I kind of think she is. I have a feeling Naomi is praying good and hard. Uh, No matter what happens at the gate, this would be Naomi's last day as a single woman. She'd either be Mrs. So-and-so or she'd be Mrs. Boaz. Now, Boaz here in this whole story, um, well, she follows Naomi's advice, knowing Boaz would settle the issue one way or the other. Uh, So Boaz stands out here as a man of action, a great guy, wisdom, integrity, doesn't wait around for something to happen. Uh, You know, he's got it all figured out. And that's really what a good man does. So if if you're looking for what a good man is, study Boaz. Pretty cool dude. Let's go to scene number three. This is acclamation, verses 11 and 12. If this were a modern wedding... Uh, the music would start playing and people would stand and they'd begin cheering. Now, we're going to be at a wedding this afternoon for a fellow grind guy, a fellow restore core guy, Joel. I, I suppose the music will start playing. Maybe we should stand and cheer when, they, when it all starts. We'd be saying, well, hold it, Mark. It's in the Old Testament. It's the way it goes in the Old Testament. Uh, so Boaz has taken Ruth as his wife, even though she's not present. The people who watch, this would be all the passers-by in and out the city gate, and ten men, remember the ten witnesses, they now pronounce three blessings. I hope you caught these three blessings. The first one, they ask God to make Ruth like Rachel and Leah. Now you probably say, well, who's that? Well, those two women, along with their maidservants, gave birth to Jacob's sons, who became leaders of the twelve tribes of Israel. They literally, we could say, well, it does say in verse 11, they built the house of Israel from the ground up through the children that they bore. And so this is a prayer that there will be children that come from Ruth's womb that will carry on the family name into future generations. But then the second prayer that they pray is that Boaz will prosper in Bethlehem. Verse 11 again, may you be powerful in Ephrathah. Now, you probably said, what happened? Remember that Bethlehem, Ephrathah, it's kind of like the city and the county here. Uh, may your name be well known in Bethlehem. So he's already well known in Bethlehem, but the prayer is that he gets even better known in the surrounding community. Now, the people understood how extraordinary it was for an older Jewish man uh, to marry a, uh, to care for, first of all, and then to marry a younger Moabite woman who also was what? She was a widow lady, and all the odds were stacked against Ruth. How would they meet? Uh, How would they fall in love? Well, we've been talking for six weeks now, God's providence, how God is always behind the scenes moving pieces together. In the third prayer that they pray, they pray for future generations, and this is where we have to kind of pull the wagon aside for a little bit because it's kind of a weird story. It's kind of like last week, remember the whole thing about uncovering feet? Okay, we're going to pull it over again to talk about another little weird story. It says, your future generations to be blessed like the house of Perez, the son Tamar bore to Judah. That's verse 12. Anybody know where this story is going already besides Jeff (laughs) and Cheryl? This is most amazing because it brings up a pretty shameful event one more time in Israel's history. And if you don't know the story, go back and read Genesis chapter 38. Uh, just know this, Judah, who was the son of Jacob, sleeps with a woman he thinks is a prostitute. You're already going, yikes, what's Jacob doing sleeping with a prostitute? 
Well, it turns out that the prostitute is Tamar, his own daughter-in-law, who is married and had a son, Ur, who is now deceased, and so she doesn't have a child. And so what she does is dress up like a prostitute and sleeps with her father-in-law to preserve the family line. But her means are, what we would say, less than noble. (laughs) I mean, masquerading as a hooker uh, seems a little bit whatever. To say the least, it's, it's unseemly and highly irregular. Now, from that illicit relationship came Perez, and from Perez... Uh, came descendants who built up the house of Perez within the tribe of Judah who, not too far down the line, comes a guy whose name, of all things, is Boaz. So Boaz comes out of a pretty funky background himself. Now, all of us have things in our own family history that you probably don't like to talk about. You know, you got that one weird uncle who lives someplace and that one crazy aunt who's out in Oklahoma and lives by herself or whatever and raises... Yeah, pigs. Yeah. I've talked to enough people in my life. I, I mean, if you go back far enough, you can probably find relatives you're pretty, pretty embarrassed with. Uh, and we all kind of got, what, rascals and scallywags. Uh, we got those skeletons in the family tree in the closet. Uh, Judah didn't cover himself with honor, let's put it this way, by sleeping with a woman he thought he was a prostitute, which is bad, and then his daughter-in-law to boot. But here in Ruth 4... We see good fruit coming from what? Bad seed. I think that's important for us to remember. It's Romans 28, Old Testament style. You all know Romans 8, 28, right? Well, let me read it to you. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Wow. Pretty cool. Now, some people actually, and I've read commentators who say, you know, we ought to skip Genesis 38 to begin with in our preaching because that kind of story is kind of untidy, if you will. But see, God has a way of redeeming untidiness. Now, we don't need to go around today for true confession. But I have a sneaking feeling, bow back to Artie, everybody has some untidiness in our past, in our life. Untidiness is a euphemism for what? Blatant sin. Uh, All kinds of stuff. We all got it. We all got it. But see, God, we heard this already in our service today, God has a way of redeeming our untidiness. In this case, he uses a Moabite widow who marries a Jewish man, and together they have a son who will be part of David's family tree. And as you get down far enough at the end of David's family tree, you find Jesus. A thousand years after this whole story takes place, Jesus is born. He comes from Abraham and David by way of Perez and Boaz and Ruth. So God often uses the unlikeliest people in the unlikeliest ways to fulfill his promises. You ever found yourself in a position of influence and you say, who am I that I should be doing this? I think every last one of us is. I think if Joel and Jeff and Anthony and I, when we were asked whether we'd start this place, and even though Mark says, 
what, it's a cowboy, a marine, an apostle, and a Jedi. <laughs> we're, we're not the, the <laughs> I'm sorry, you guys. I mean, I love you guys, but it's really an unlikely group of people to start a mission <laughs> congregation. <laughs> you'd, you'd want to go back to the seminary and find you know, four guys that just graduated with, uh, with their MDiv degrees. <laughs> But see, that's how God works. He's got a way of redeeming our untidiness. I mean, we are four untidy guys. No doubt about it. I mean, so this is kind of an interesting thing. God uses all of us in some way. He, he, he redeems us. He cleans us up and says, no, you can do it. Well, what do we learn from this story? Oh, gosh, we could go on for a long time. Give me a few things from Boaz. Let's start with Boaz. I think we learn the importance of integrity. Integrity, the Greek word, means to have a one-piece heart. You're not duplicitous here. I don't know why I use that word. I'd have to define it again. It means to have a one-piece heart, which means integrity. So just as Boaz uh, refused to take advantage of Ruth at the threshing floor, he also refuses to take advantage of an unnamed relative. I mean, Mr. So-and-so should have had the first choice in this whole thing. If he redeems the land, marries Ruth, so be it. Better to live with disappointments than have a guilty conscience. But he follows the letter of the law by accepting the sandal from a nearer relative. Twice he informs ten men that they're the witnesses to this whole deal. There's nothing hidden here because Boaz is a man of integrity. What can we learn from Ruth? Well, I think we learn the importance of waiting on God. How many of you had to wait on God? You ever done that one? See, having met Boaz at midnight on the threshing floor and, asking, and actually asking him to marry her, because that's exactly what it was intended, she has done all that she can do. Naomi's advice, if you remember from last week, was sit tight. Sit tight. That's pretty good wisdom. Oh, pastor, I'm here to tell you about my problem. I'll just sit tight. And we're paying you to give me that kind of advice? Yeah, you'd be amazed how many people I've told in my life. Just hang in there. Just hang in there. Wait a while. Sit tight. Yeah. A lot of people didn't like that advice. But it doesn't hurt us to wait a little bit. See, she does not appear at the gate. First of all, she wasn't needed there. Second of all, women weren't supposed to be at the gate. Uh, only the family of redeemers could be at the gate. So she had no place in the whole way this thing was going out. Now, when you've done all you can do, I, I would just tell you, don't feel guilty because you cannot do any more. At some point, we just need to what, leave room for God. Uh, try as we might, we cannot orchestrate all of life's affairs. Those of you that have kids or grandkids, you ever try to orchestrate the affairs of your children or your grandchildren? <laughs> Yeah, I think we all do that to some extent. See, it's sometimes wise to do what we can do and then just let the Lord take care of the rest. Uh, Waiting time is not wasted time uh, if you're waiting on the Lord. Now, here's the third thing. When we follow God's plan, guess what? We We should expect God's blessing. I can translate that into my own life. I could probably translate that into my family's life. I know I could translate that into restore. If you're going to follow God's plan, not your plan, understand, I said God's plan, 
expect God to bless it. See, everything about this story seems absolutely nuts. But yet that's part of God's plan from the very beginning. I mean, nobody could write out a script like this. If you roll back the clock to the famine in the land, Elimelech's decision to go to Moab seems stupid at best. Uh, Yet God used it to do what? To bring Ruth and Naomi together. And then when Ruth says, what, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your God will be my God. She had no inkling what was about to happen as she crossed the border from Moab back into Judea. The future was as much mystery as yours is or mine. See, Ruth did not conspire to live with Naomi so she could find a guy named Boaz years later. I mean, she committed herself to Naomi and Naomi's God and then took a step of faith. Just that simple. And those steps led from Moab back to Bethlehem and then to the fields of Boaz and then to a threshing floor and that led to a wedding and that led to a baby. That's kind of cool. I mean, who could write a story like that? Only God. See, generations are going to come and go. I mean, some of you have kids. Some of you have grandkids. Some of you may have great-grandkids. And maybe those great-grandkids will have great-great-grandkids. It's going to go on. It goes on. Faith means taking the next step and just leaving whatever comes after the results up to him. And the, the interesting thing is we probably won't live long enough to see the outcome of our faith what our faith may produce somehow in the future. Jump ahead 50 years and the restore is still here. They may not remember us, but that's okay. It's okay. They're here because of something that God planted before. And God is always doing that through his people for the next generations. See, it doesn't matter because Psalm 100 verse 5 says God's mercy endures to what? All generations. It means God's mercy goes from one generation to the other. Uh, Generations come and go. The only thing that remains constant is God. So here we are near the end of the story. Uh, Our eyes kind of focus on God again behind the scenes. The story stretches on over the horizon to remind us that only God sees the big picture that is ahead. So my encouragement to you today is simply this, have faith. Have faith. Don't despair. Don't worry. Um, Don't feel like you're all alone. Don't feel like you're the only one in the world. Trust in God and just take the next step. Have faith. I don't know what's all going on in your life today. If your current situation seems a little bit weird or funky, or crooked, or hard, whatever you want to plug into that, remember, you're not home yet. The best is yet to come. But that will be next week. And we'll all be back together again.